February 14th is, as we all know, Valentine's Day. If you're listening to this on the public release date, then happy Valentine's Day. If you were a patron, you would have had access to this episode a day early on February 13th. Anyway, Valentine's Day was named for more than one martyr of early Christianity. It's a day for celebrating romance and love. And not just romantic or erotic love, but it's also a day for celebrating love between friends, family members, and even the generalized love we share with other people. People give each other flowers, candies, baked goods, trinkets, and little love notes called Valentines. And if there's any group of people who were all about love, it was the ancient Greeks. The Greeks were so into love, in fact, that they established eight different types of love. Eros is erotic love, the love shared between romantic partners. Philia is affectionate love, like the love shared between friends. Think Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Lettuce is playful love, which is associated with anything from flirting to so-called no-strings-attached encounters. This type of love has strong ties to infidelity as well, which can lead to mania or obsessive love. It could be argued that obsession isn't love at all, but that's a rabbit hole that I'll avoid for today. Pragma is enduring love, which focuses on making more enjoyable forms of love, like eros and philia, secondary to approaching a relationship with reason and a desire to make things work for one reason or another. Partners who stay together for the good of children or finances are practicing pragma. So, think pragmatism. Philousia is self-love, arguably the most important type of love, because you can't really give love to others if you don't love yourself to begin with. Like the idea that you can't fill up the cup of others if the cup you're trying to pour from is empty. Agape is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional love. In my religious upbringing, this was usually talked about in reference to the love that God has for mankind. But this type of love can also refer to the type of love that a parent has for a child. But out of all eight of these types of love, let's focus on the first one I mentioned, Eros. Or maybe you're more familiar with him by his Roman name, Cupid.
Typically, when we think of Cupid, we imagine little fat angel babies carrying around a bow with heart-shaped arrows. And honestly, this is not completely off-base, depending on who you ask. I'll start off by clearing up that those little cherubs actually had a name before we started calling them cupids. Chubby babies, usually male and often depicted with wings, are actually singularly called a putto, the plural of which is putti. Early putti were artistic representations of passions, often profane, and during the Baroque period, they became associated with omnipresence of God. It wasn't until the 15th century that Cupid fully took on the appearance of a putto. In case you were wondering, a putto that represents a Cupid actually has a name as well, an amaretto or an amarino. In the Middle Ages, Cupid began his transformation from an ancient minor god to a staple of Christian symbolism. But even in his earliest representations, Cupid was often viewed as youthful, even childlike in some regards, as well as mischievous and with strong associations toward love. Originally, the Greeks considered two origins for Eros. The first was that Eros was one of the oldest gods in the pantheon, considered a primordial god who came into being at or before the beginning of time. Some even thought that the only two gods older than Eros were Gaia and Chaos. Then there was the youthful, boyish Cupid, whose parentage was uncertain, but could have been anyone from Gaia to Aphrodite and Ares to Ether. One Greek writer at one point tells the story of Cupid welcoming Aphrodite into the world at the time of her birth, and at another point tells the story of Cupid's birth from Aphrodite. The Romans were equally unsure of Cupid's parentage, thinking him possibly mothered by Venus or Diana, and possibly fathered by Vulcan, Mercury, or Mars. Classically speaking, the belief was widely held that Cupid was the son of Venus and Mars, whose relationship was an allegory for love and war. But really, no matter where Cupid came from, he carried the blood of a god through and through, even if he was responsible for his own parentage. The dichotomy of his potential origins carried through to the Christianity of the Middle Ages, with Cupid being viewed as symbolic of the love between heaven and earth, or the love between God and mankind. Cupid was almost always depicted as having wings, symbolic of the flightiness or fluttering excitement of love. Two symbols associated with Cupid 
were the arrow and the torch or flame, because love wounds and inflames the heart. Sometimes Cupid was represented blindfolded and described as blind, not so much physical blindness, but the sightlessness associated with the excitement of love and lust. In fact, Shakespeare described Cupid in A Midsummer Night's Dream as follows. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste, wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. And therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled. Starting with the Romans, Cupid was often represented with animals, fruit, or representations of the seasons, as well as carrying strong associations with Bacchus, the Roman god of wine, all of which showed Cupid's connections to reproduction, love, and regeneration. One animal, in particular, that Cupid became associated with, that also had strong connections to Bacchus, was dolphins, which were viewed by the Romans as playful animals that were friends to humans and that were sometimes considered to help guide the souls of humans to the afterlife. So strong was this connection, in fact, that Cupid, riding a dolphin, made appearances in all types of art in the ancient Roman world, including on the sarcophagi of people, especially deceased children. The Greeks believed that Eros carried two types of arrows with him, one tipped in gold and the other in lead. A strike with the gold-tipped arrow would lead the injured party to become filled with lust, love, or desire, while a strike with the lead-tipped arrow led to the opposite, feelings of aversion, disgust, or the desire to flee. Eros had the ability to use these arrows however he saw fit, usually with few consequences. At one point, he was taunted by Apollo, who claimed that he was the better of the two archers. So to prove that he was a superior archer, Cupid shot Apollo with a gold-tipped arrow but then shot the object of Apollo's desire, a nymph by the name of Daphne, with the lead-tipped arrow. This, of course, caused Apollo to be filled with more desire for Daphne than ever before, while Daphne fled from Apollo, wanting nothing to do with him. As Apollo continued his pursuit of the nymph, she pleaded with her father a river god by the name of Peneus, to spare her from Apollo's unrequited love. 
To save her from the advances of Apollo, Peneus transformed Daphne into a laurel tree, which came to be known as a type of tree that was sacred to Apollo. In the 15th century, James I of Scotland penned a poem that described Cupid as having three arrows, one tipped with gold for a curable love, one tipped with silver for a more difficult-to-overcome love, and the last tipped in steel for a wound of love that can never heal. One story of Cupid ends with a joke about his arrows. Cupid, a young child at the time, attempted to steal honey from a beehive, only to be chased and stung by the bees. He ran to his mother, Venus, crying, and complained to her that something so small should not be able to cause such painful injuries. Venus laughed at the young Cupid, pointing out to him the irony of his complaint. He was a young, small child, but carried with him the ability to inflict the painful sting of love. The most well-documented story of Cupid, though, pertained to his own love story. This story originated with the Greeks, but it was most well-documented in a 2nd century book entitled Metamorphoses, or The Golden Ass. In this story, there is a beautiful young woman by the name of Psyche. Psyche is so beautiful that she threatens Venus herself with her beauty. So Venus calls upon her son Cupid to take care of Psyche for her. But Cupid is taken with the beautiful young woman and instead has her taken to his palace. It's in his palace that a strange love story emerges where he and Psyche become married, and every night Cupid visits Psyche's chambers. One version of this story is that Psyche is only visited by an invisible entity, and another is that she's visited only in the dark, and is instructed by Cupid that she cannot look at him. Psyche's sisters, jealous of her luxurious new lifestyle with her mysterious husband, convince Psyche that she must be married to a horrible, monstrous man, and they convince her to find a way to look at him. So Psyche, once convinced by her sisters, visits Cupid's chambers and looks at him under the light of a lamp surprised to see his youthful beauty. Cupid is awoken, and seeing his wife has done the one thing he told her not to do, he abandons her. Psyche is left to wander the earth, searching for her lost love. She ends up in servitude to Venus, who sends her on a series of tasks. The final task Venus sends Psyche on 
is to enter the underworld and retrieve some of the beauty belonging to Proserpina, known to the Greeks as Persephone. Upon her return to Venus, Psyche is tempted to look into the box just to see the beauty inside. But when she opens the box, she is struck down with a magical sleep. Cupid finds her like this, and being reminded of his love for Psyche, awakens her and grants her immortality, allowing them to be joined together in a marriage of two equals as gods. Imagery from this story also showed up frequently in Roman art and on sarcophagi, since the story itself represented the strength of love over the clutches of death. As time went on, this story became interpreted by many different people, with some seeing it as symbolic of the strength of love, while others saw it as symbolic of the suffering brought upon Psyche by giving into lust, or the doom she brought upon herself by placing sexual or erotic love at the top of her priorities. Of course, it didn't matter to some people that Psyche was little more than a girl with no sexual experience when Cupid took her to his palace. This was used by some, especially in the Middle Ages, to show the joy that Cupid took from corrupting the innocent, virginal girl. The belief arose among some that Cupid was little more than an evil corrupter whose purpose was simply to cause strife and disloyalty and cause fractures in marriages, leading to infidelity. Interestingly, according to Metamorphoses, Psyche became pregnant with Cupid's child, and they named her Voluptas, or Pleasure, which doesn't really sound like either of them regretted their position in the relationship when it was all said and done. In the 6th century, the story of Psyche and Cupid was retold with a Christian backing with Psyche herself being an Adam-like figure, driven from paradise by lust and sin. In this telling, Psyche's sisters were lust and free will, both of which led to her being cast from the paradise of true love. But in the end, Psyche and Cupid ended up together which was symbolic of the marriage between God, or Cupid, and the human soul, or Psyche. So, keep all this in mind next time you see that weird little angel baby surrounded by hearts and carrying a weapon. Eros, for the Greeks, and Cupid, for the Romans, was actually far more interesting than the little cherubic symbol of love that we've turned him into. Enjoy your candy, valentines, red roses, and maybe a glass of red wine, 
but keep Cupid in mind this Valentine's Day. And remember that he can decide whether you get the gold-tipped arrow or the lead-tipped arrow. Thanks for listening to this special Valentine's Day episode of WISE. Get two extra episodes a month, regular episodes a day before everyone else, and other patron-only content by becoming a patron of WISE at patreon.com slash wisepodcast. If you have questions about this or any other episode, or suggestions or requests for future episodes, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at awisepodcast, or email me at awisepodcast at gmail.com.